Welcome to Threat Actions This Week, the show where we look at the latest threats, tech, and actions your organization can take. Today's top security talent share their insights with you. We are live this week. We are at the GoSec conference. We are in beautiful Montreal with this fantastic audience. Thank you all for coming and joining us. We have four experts with us. First, we've got Mike Davis. He's the CTO over at Counterattack. He's normally in the Chicago area, if not on a plane jetting off somewhere, and he's joining us live here today. Welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you, David. And we've got Jonathan Wen. He's normally in the Washington, D.C. area. He is over at Fortinet, and he is the Vice President of Strategy and Analytics over there. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you. Travis Barlow, he is the VP of uh, a lot of things over at GoSecure, of advanced security. That's about it. Okay, perfect. Well, that works. That works just fine then. And he's normally in the Halifax area. And we've got Ben Smith with us as well. He's usually in the Washington, D.C. area. He's the field CTO over at RSA, which basically means he covers everything that they've got, which is fantastic. So thanks, Ben, for joining it's us as well. It's my pleasure to be here. I try to cover everything, David, but... Uh We'll see how I do after the next 45 minutes. I'm sure, it's going to be fantastic. So today's panel is about incident response. So the breach has happened. Something is going on. What do we do? Okay, actually, we're going to start a little bit before that. We've got a lot of changes, right? We've got cloud that we're all going into. So we've got shared responsibility of the cloud. So maybe it's the provider, maybe it's me. We've now got container environments where we've got limited visibility into that environment. So sometimes trying to respond to something might be a bit challenging. We've got developers who are now getting into the mix as well, right? And so maybe they're responsible for some of this. And of course, we're heading out into the IoT environments, into smartphones, what have you. So my question that uh, I'm going to go open up with uh, for you, Jonathan, when you think about all this change and you think about what an IR plan, an incident response plan would have looked like a couple years ago, maybe a few years ago, and now, what are some of the changes maybe that organizations might want to think about when they're thinking about the IR plan? I think the first part, even before we get to, um, to IR, is detection. Sure. You know, currently, about 75% of all data breaches are identified by victims and law enforcement. So it's not the internal security team, it's not the service provider that's telling you you've been breached. So the first part is, let's work on detecting it first, and then, and then let's also talk about the IR plan in the cloud. So a couple of things are different, a couple of things are the same. Uh, I think one of the first things you need to do as part of your IR plan is to have a person on staff that really understands that cloud services provider that you're using, understand their, their, their processes, understand what the roles and responsibility is in a shared responsibility model, and talk about how do they detect, how do they notify, and how do you interact with them. A lot of folks, it'll take you the better part of six, six to nine, sometimes 12 months to get someone on staff who really understands that operating model. Second of that, of course, is to get the skill sets associated with that. You've got to be able to access the logs. Most common problem in, in, in data breach investigations I've seen was inadequate logging to begin with. But once you get access to the logs, it's, that's where it all dovetails into traditional, traditional methodologies. Right? So the new skill sets you need are really about understanding your, your CSP, understanding how you're going to collect the logs, who's going to do the alerting, the preparation. In, in the preparation and then the identification phases, it's really key to understand that service provider. In the um, a con eradication and containment phase, it's therefore to set up those VPCs beforehand so that you can isolate the event, you can set up a new instance and continue, continue with operations. 
applications. The key point is this. We're having problems with visibility today in legacy physical environments, right? How are you going to have visibility in a virtualized environment? How do you collect that data? And then really figure out how you're going to get the alerts, who's going to be doing the alerting, and what will be the triggers that you're looking for, that anomalous behavior. And look for platforms and tools that will span both your physical legacy environment and increasingly into not just one, but at least the five large CSPs. Perfect. Mike, you're nodding. You've got something to add here to this as well. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. I think one thing that uh, uh, Jonathan missed here is you can simulate a lot of this stuff. Right, so uh, we did an incident response about two and a half years ago. A key vendor that was actually hosting majority of their web-based e-commerce application. Uh, we simulated an incident response doing a tabletop. We called the number that they give us in the contract and nobody answered, okay. right? Uh, because actually it was all lie. There was no security team, there was no security person, yeah. there was nothing. Right, so you need to understand your provider just as well as they understand you, and you got to you know test them sometimes, make sure. Right, so I think Jonathan's you know right on. Before you even get to the incident response, are you even prepared to communicate with those that you need to? Ben, you have talks that are just fantastic uh, on this as well, looking at the changing attack surface and and what that means for an IR plan, but also just how the attacker themselves has been changing their approach to what's occurring. And then the fact that, well, maybe it's a subterfuge and maybe they're, they're attacking me over in this part of my organization so that I think they're over there, but actually they're over here causing some damage. So how do I plan for that? What are some of the things I might want to start to think about in my environment to prepare for that so changing I, attack? I would love, I would love to have the magic easy button for all of us, but I, I'm going to hope that based on everything we've heard today, folks understand it is about awareness. I love what we've just heard about deception technologies. The bad guys are crafty. Guess what? The good guys can be crafty as well. Uh, I talked a little bit about the importance of exercising your plan. I think you've heard from everybody else up here as well. That is crazy important. A lot of organizations have the plan. To speak a little more directly, David, to your question, you know, how do we better prepare for that inevitable attack or that inevitable approach by an adversary, I spend a lot of time reading the news, probably the same news that you and I are reading on a regular basis. And a lot of the stories I told this morning, some of the stories you've heard, I'm sure, from some of the other speakers are kind of ripped from the headlines. They serve as a very useful conversation point for my customers internal to their own organizations. No vendor, no consultant wants to be accused of spreading fear, uncertainty, and doubt unnecessarily, right? But there's a lot of value in taking things from the headlines that maybe your vice president, maybe your executive has read about or heard about, and pointing at that and say, here's what could happen to us in that scenario. That conversation never, by the way, results in more budget magically appearing. But part of our job, I would argue, as information security professionals is to educate our management chain, educate our executives, educate our board around the realities that we are all living, that our colleagues and other verticals at other companies are living today. We've got to spend and understand that part of our job is to educate our own coworkers and especially our executives about the threats that are out there. Perfect, and I know Travis, you're chomping at the bit as well, given that you know, you're trying to help organizations focus their attention across all the different attack services. So, so how do you start to guide customers in this regard? Just speaking from current experience in the last year or two, uh, with an increase of breaches that we've witnessed, um, I bring it back, and me and Ben, we spoke about this when we first came up on stage before this started. Uh, fundamental principles of network hygiene. 
uh, we're seeing a, a across the board that seems to be forgotten a lot of times, mm-hmm. and that leads to the breach. And then a lot of times, more often than not, building on that asset, knowing where your assets are. And we're seeing a continuation of people aren't sure where their assets are, where their real risks are, as well as where they're, di- where, where they're going to be hit the hardest. So you might think there's an attacker here and over here, but at the end of the day, the motives are generally the same, financial gain and so forth. So it's easy. If you know where your risks are, your, your, your data, your, uh, your materials, then uh, you know, that's where you need to focus. And it is so hard to jump right to the end of the cybersecurity framework into into response and recover. If I don't have all these upfront pieces done well, then the respond piece is just not going to work for me in that function of the NIST CSF. Now, but if I'm thinking about how do I measure if I'm doing well or doing not, and by the way, audience, we're coming to you next. So get your questions ready. We've got three mic runners out there ready to take your questions. So I get one more question, then it's your turn. So my question is this. When we start to think about how an organization is doing, we know at a very top level, if they're getting breached a lot, if there's a lot of data being exfiltrated from their organization or a lot of downtime, we know maybe things aren't going so well. What are some of the other metrics and maybe some of the key benchmarks I want, might want to think about? I think going on beyond traditional things like mean time to detection, mean time to mitigation, mean time to uh, remediation, right? Um, number of false positives, those are, those are standard types of KPIs in, in security. I look at the digital transformation business objectives. So a wonderful case example is Alaska Airlines. So Alaska Airlines guarantees that from the moment you land, it should be no more than 20 minutes before that luggage arrives at the carousel. And if it's not there, then you're going to get cash into your account. If your flight's delayed, then you're going to be sent a message directed to the nearest lounge, and you'll be updated. I will tell you this, the KPIs are the business outcomes. When you understand what those applications, those workloads really generate in terms of the SLA to that customer experience, go beyond just the IT measurements, and that's how you establish that rapport with the business side of the office. Do so you understand that this cloud instance supports the ability to ensure that that bag will appear 20 minutes, no more, no less? And every enterprise is measuring that customer experience. So Jeff Bezos got it right in 1995 when he had a chief customer experience officer. The essence of what we deliver going forward is not a service, it's a customer experience, both public sector, private sector, the connected consumer, and the connected citizen. Understanding what the KPIs, those business objectives, translating that into this notion of security by intent and into those cloud metrics is, is what we need to do. Right? And, and so, so, Mike, am I looking at a dashboard here of these, these KPIs when, when you look at it from your right? Because uh, Jonathan raises an excellent point. I mean, it's got to come back to the business, to some core metrics of the company. So what am I looking at as, as an exec or maybe even as, as a security pro or what have you? Somewhat contrary to what Jonathan was saying, but in the end coming to the same point is, uh, I think it was um, you know, the boxer had a great quote, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth, right? And <laughs> And uh, I think when you have dashboards, you have KPIs, they give you a false sense of security a lot of times. I don't know how out here, but you know, a lot of our customers have a needle in a needle stack problem. They've got all kinds of alerts, all kinds of KPIs. But what I think Jonathan was really getting at is what's the KPIs that matter, yeah. right? What are the ones that make the impact? So you've got a dashboard, you've got 22 different things you're looking at. You think you're doing well, and then all of a sudden, bam, something comes up. You don't know how to deal with it because you're not mature, you haven't gone through the processes like Ben was mentioning and exercising your plan. So to me, it's about actually working with the business to know what are the things that actually matter to us. 
So for example, Alaska, as you said, they cared about the customer getting their bag in the end and having a good experience. For your business, it may be packaging, it may be you know, transactions, whatever it is that keeps the business flowing. That's the KPIs you want to be uh, monitoring and managing, not just security KPIs you got from uh, a GitHub repo. Fair enough. At the same time, if you know you're a, you're a runner, you're doing whatever it is, even if you're a boxer, whatever whatever the analogy is, there's there's going to be some things that you want to know: Am I doing well? Am I not doing so well? And have those benchmarks to measure yourself against other organizations. Yes, yeah, they definitely should. And and I think every organization is different where they are in the maturity cycle. So you mentioned NIST CSF. You know, depending on where you are in that you know zero to a four cycle, the KPIs you want to monitor then are to get you to the next maturity level. Right, and you will be continuing to build off those over time. You don't want to uh, try to take level four KPIs when you're only at a level one of maturity, because what will happen is they look bad. You're going to lose the interest of the business liaisons, the business. Uh, you're not setting yourself up for success. So specific ones, actually, some of the ones that Jonathan mentioned as traditional security ones are great in the beginning of the maturity process. Um, over time, you want to transition from just security metrics into business metrics. And ben, yeah. what do you think about that? Let me let me pick up on that really important point. I think you've heard this from all of us, I can promise you the quickest way to fail to measure your effectiveness as a security professional is to do it in a silo and not involve your business, not involve your business partner. So those metrics, because there are a lot of vendors out there that have great tools that spit out operational metrics, some of them are even canned and you're out of the box, you get these great reports. That's easy for the vendor to create, might be relevant to your environment, but the odds are those operational metrics are not necessarily going to translate well up the food chain to your executives. So I think you've heard from all of us this afternoon that there's a, there's a stretch goal that we're all encouraging you to focus on and to commit to. And that stretch goal is we need to be more than just information security professionals. We need to be business professionals. We need to understand the impact of what we are doing. And the best way to start that conversation is exactly that. It's a conversation. If I've collected the five best information security metrics in the world and I haven't validated them with folks up my food chain and especially maybe at the VP or the C-level suite, how, how likely is it that all five of those metrics are the right metrics for that audience? It's extremely unlikely, I'd argue. So it's a communications problem more than anything else, internal to most organizations. So please don't be that well-intentioned, highly technical, highly able individual who creates great security-focused metrics without testing those metrics with your business partners. It's critical. Really good points. And so what questions do we have from the audience? Um, I have two questions. The first one is, um, I totally agree that uh, metrics in terms of incident, uh, how many attacks were blocked versus uh, missed or time to react would somehow help. So how do you link the protection you put in place to that particular risk assessment you have in, in the first place? Uh, my second question is, um, we build a response team in layers like tier one, tier two, tier three. But I'm trying to wonder if that really works well if you have variety of technologies and would it be better to build, build um, response per technology? Like let's say this team is fully dedicated for web application protection, this team is really, uh, fully dedicated for IPS type or, or any intrusion type. Would that, what are the differences between the two models? Yeah, so I think actually the analogy that David started talking about being a runner, you know, if you work out, you got a fitness watch or something, you're tracking metrics, right? Why are you doing that? It's to improve to one degree, right? But in the flip sense, it's actually, when you're in the middle of that real race you've been preparing for, when you look down at your watch, you know your heart rate is right where it's supposed to be. You know what's going on around you. You feel comfortable being able to make a decision, 
right? So the metrics that you want to link to, you want to make sure that those are decision-making metrics. So from a business perspective, your server gets popped, and all of a sudden you have to go and do something from an incident response perspective. Those metrics that before don't matter except to know that you're ready and able to handle this. You're going to be able to tell the business, we're going to be back up and running in 30 minutes. Here's the expected downtime. Here's how I'm going to get you back working. Right? If you don't know what those things are to get them back working, you can't link. So as Ben mentioned, you don't just exercise your plan in terms of you walking through the steps. You exercise your plan with the business. So you go and say, hey, that, this machine got popped and we have to now put that network segment down. What happens? Tell me. So now that you tell me what happens, I can go start building a linkage between these metrics. So Jonathan, to the second part of the question around the security operations center and thinking about the different tiers and maybe about the staffing and how I maybe reallocate or think about that a little bit differently. Are there approaches that you saw back from your days in Verizon or from some of the customers and uh, from a Fortinet perspective that you see that you might want to uh, advise around? Sure. I, I think the, the first thing about, about SOX um, is that it's very human intensive, which is counterintuitive. You know, cyber is basically a human-initiated machine problem that's operating at machine speed. But we keep trying to find more and more trained people and throwing them at it. So the, the, the first element is that uh, use automation wherever possible and intelligence in the form of playbooks. Uh, I'm, I'm not a fan of, of silos, uh, as, as you clearly know. I'm really a fan of measuring for anomalous behavior in, in, in users and systems, irrespective. When you look at data breaches, there's always a couple of things that are going to be happening. There's anomalous behavior in, in the application server, the database server, uh, and then changes in privileged access. Uh, and, and what I found most interesting is that when you go into it in, in the aftermath of data breach and you ask people, what were they looking for? No one was ever looking at that. Most MSSPs don't look at things like that. They're generating their alerts based upon you know, alerts from next generation firewalls. So when I look at SIM technology, I look for something that can look at both the security events, but look at the CPU performance and the network behavior, because the security incident will appear both on the network side as well as the security side of the house. Um, and I think that when you see anomalous behavior, the key part then is can you segment? Can you begin some level of, of mitigation at that point? And, and I always go back that that poor tier one operator, right, sees something, doesn't know what it is, doesn't sure what it is, escalates to tier two. Tier two sort of makes another decision. And then, well, I'm not sure I really should do this. I remember one time, it was before Thanksgiving, and, and, and we monitored something that looked a heck of a lot like a DDoS attack. And I said, well, wait a minute, it's day before Thanksgiving. What does this company do? They sell hams. <laughs> I, said, I said, is it possible that there's a Groupon thing going on and that they're self-DDoSing themselves? Yeah, that's what happened. The marketing department issued a Groupon thing. There was a mad rush to buy hams and it looked like a DDoS attack. Um, so, so understand. <laughs> Yeah, we should all tell, tell, tell war stories from, from our sock days, right? Yeah, but yeah, I, that's what I would do. Yeah. I know, Travis, you, you, you certainly, uh, from, a, from a Go Secure counterattack perspective, have done a lot in that regard in terms of working with the teams and trying to get that optimal configuration. What, what have you found that works? I'm not big on uh, the tiered approach. Uh, the main reason being is I, I've seen it fail many times. And when I say fail, typically you get the tier one incoming, 
it gets escalated. There's a bit of delay. There's always some questioning. Um, our approach, of course, is to from detection to mitigation as quickly as possible. Uh, you know, I, I've seen a lot of SOCs operate under the eight-hour window. That's their SLA. Oh, eight hours from detection until we alert you. Uh, you know, when we detect, we really want to move quicker than that. And the, the tiers kind of slow that down and add to it. I like one tier right across the board. It's hard to achieve that from a resourcing point of view and training, of course, but uh, that's always the goal we, we're striving for. recovery plan is keeping it updated. Um, I remember one particular instance when I was in the Foreign Service and we were doing a, um, a, 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 a warfare drill, essentially. Um, and, and during the drill, we all went down hunkered in the bunker in the embassy. I won't say which U.S. embassy, but we went down there and we found the normal things, the, the food, the water, and there was a phone. Unfortunately, it was a rotary phone. <laughs> Next to You'll have to explain what that is. Uh, yeah, right. The there, there's yes. certain parts of Maine you may find these things, and you may find them on YouTube. This whole dial thing, right? <laughs> and, and perfectly functional, but we couldn't use it for anything because it was a rotary phone. And, and so I can't stress how important it is to keep things updated and, and test and test and test. But I think there's a, a question over there. Uh, so we're hearing about a lot of complexity, how things really grown, they fabric, so everything has been digitized and a little bit naive question. Do you think it's actually still possible for one person to grasp the whole complexity, everything that uh, happens in all levels of IT system, or is it just, it's just too late? We, we ne really need a group, a team, a SOC we'll, that will work together to address this issue. It is a team sport. What do you guys think? Well, so, um Actually, you tie a little bit into the tiered idea here. Complexity is actually the biggest issue. And one of the things I think we don't do very well in security in general is look outside our industry. Even in IT, we don't. But we don't really see buildings falling down, do we? Like in the middle of the day, you don't see a building fall down. But how many times do networks just stop working in the middle of the day? Right? So if we look at what the construction industry has done to deal with complexity of massively high skyscrapers, what they focus on is the communication we mentioned earlier between the teams, so ensuring that the experts can communicate to each other in a very easy way. So if a carpenter is looking on a skyscraper and they see a weld that's bad, they have a very clean structure to go get somebody to address that bad weld before the building has an actual structural issue. So complexity with the added you know, problem of distribution and distributed systems in general requires that you know, silos are natural, sadly, they, they get built. But the way you break those down is the communication and focusing on enhancing that communication and validating the communication as much as possible. You know, we can, I think if we leverage and looked at some of these other areas on the way we communicate as technology professionals, we'd probably do a lot better job in the middle of an incident. Another part of the question too could be, I'm maybe a mid-market company or maybe I'm a smaller organization and I'm thinking, okay, can I, should I set up a SOC? At what point do you think there's this inflection point that a company grows where, okay, you can have your own dedicated team? Let's talk about the internal and then at what point I'm going to sort of push that external and start to use an MSP or other providers. Who wants to leap in there first? So the, the decision about building a SOC goes down to what is your core competency? What, what Meg Whitman told me was, what is the DNA of your organization? Uh, and I, I think back to complexity again, I think for the vast majority of mid-market companies, it doesn't make sense to build out your own SOC. I mean, security is so complex today that there's two disciplines going out there. There's security event monitoring and managed detection and response. 
Um, and building a SOC internally is a huge undertaking. There is a cyber shortage of staffing. Where are you going to find people? How are you going to retain them? And is that really your core competency to, to staff something 24 by 7? Or are you going to go with a co-managed model? I, I would tell you also look at the risks that you face. Are you someone that may face um, automated opportunistic attacks? Or are you someone in the critical national infrastructure supply chain where you're going to be the target of an attack? And not just an attack, but a campaign of attacks. And, and I think go look at your core competency. And I think in the vast majority of mid-market companies, it makes better sense to, to go with someone who is a managed security services provider. I, I will tell you that it is so complex today that IT teams are overwhelmed by the number of alerts. They really benefit by having someone standing behind them and saying, by the way, of all the things you're seeing, this is something that you really should pay attention to. And, and I, I would just briefly add on, David, to say that, that yes, you know, e even, even very large customers, so if we go to the opposite end of the spectrum, not necessarily a small or medium-sized organization, many very large customers, tier one brands in their verticals, in some cases still outsource some portion of their own internal SOC function to an external managed provider. They want and understand and appreciate the value of having an extra set of eyes. Sometimes it's not even necessarily about being overwhelmed with everything that is in their environment. That does happen frequently. But uh, it's all around having another set of eyes. Think about the doctor, who's the smart doctor, who's not going to self-diagnose an illness inside his or her own body. There are times, and one of those times is in the middle of a breach, where having another brain, somebody who's not necessarily intimately inside the battle right now, maybe a managed provider, maybe some other entity, can be very important to help you get yourself back on your feet. Good points. And so, so coming back to the response piece and who ultimately do I want on that team? Because it's going to be some people internal, it's going to be some people that are going to be external to my company. And Ben, maybe we'll just continue with you just for a moment. I know you've put a lot of time and thought into this. Who ultimately are you going to put on that team? It's a big audience, and we, we kind of talked a little earlier today about the reality that a good breach response or incident response plan does not simply reflect a technical remediation, right? So yes, you need the right people who can identify that something bad has happened in your environment, who can triage what's happening in your environment, and who can remediate or contain what's happening in your environment. And all three of those points uh, tend to be technical solutions. but. Right? We talked a little bit about the challenge of communications. You're a member of an organization, an agency, a company, etc. There's a communications plan. That communications plan needs to be respectful and re, uh, reactive to the reality that you've got folks inside of your organization who are going to be a little freaked out in the middle of the breach. There might be people outside of your organization. Think about your own customers or your own constituents. So there's a big public relations or a PR, almost a marketing component to a successful incident response plan. If you happen to be in a highly regulated industry or even a lightly regulated industry, there might be a legal member of that extended team. There might be a member of your risk management function. There might be a compliance function. In larger organizations, all three of those functions might be different groups. If you have a managed provider externally, there's a lot of different parties. So that's one consistent place, one uh, hole, if you will, that I've seen some organizations fall into. They treat that plan purely as a technical remediation exercise, and a good plan is going to be significantly broader than that. 
Travis, in your experience, what have you done when you've been working with, with organizations that are maybe on the smaller side of the scale? David, precisely what you just mentioned, uh, build those relationships with external experts, uh, have them ready, typically retainers for a lot of those services, legal, PR, and so forth, and bring them all together for the exercises, build out that plan, redo that once every six months, once a year at least, uh, as a minimum, and uh, work through it, bring everybody together, make sure it flows flawlessly. Uh, but uh, that's what we've seen out there that's worked well with a lot of clients. Now, I know we could do an entire panel on cyber insurance, and so maybe just some, some quick thoughts on, should I just say, okay, forget it, I can't deal with this anyway, I'll get the cyber insurance organization to help me out here? And what's no, I, would, I would disagree with that. I mean, yeah. cyber insurance, the problem is if you lie on that form, you get nothing. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if you're lying to yourself already, you're going to lie on the form. So it goes back to the maturity discussion in my mind. I think Travis hits it on the head. You've got to keep those relationships if you're in the maturity process where you can't do it yourself, right? And you've got to recognize that and be okay with it, right? And continue to work forward on it. What you don't want to have on your team, though, is you don't want to have the attacker on your team. What I mean by that is you talked about communication, but you don't want to be communicating all this sensitive information during the breach in the systems that are already attacked and owned by the attacker. So um, war story, that was actually it. The email system was compromised and the whole IR team was communicating what they were doing and the attacker was reading all the emails. So don't have them as part of your IR team. Yeah, uh, so I, I recently spoke at a cyber insurance conference and, and, and afterwards, off the record, these guys and gals told me, look, we get calls every day, 20, 40 policies at a time. Are you in or are you out? You don't get it. They don't, the underwriters don't get a chance to really see what they're underwriting. They're either in and they're out. So the vast majority out there is Wild West. Second point of factor, really understand what you're buying and the terms and the exclusions are involved. I mean, just remember that if someone defines in the aftermath that you didn't execute a reasonable level of due care, it's, it's kind of void to begin with, right? So cyber insurance, be very, very particular about what it is that you're buying, the coverage that you're buying, especially for things like administrative costs, those things that are often overlooked, postage, right? <laughs> and, and that's where it becomes effective, but it's, it's a reasonable hedge, but be mindful, it's a two-way street. Thank you for that, sage advice. So I have Perfect. a question here, it might be a different one, I was thinking, why is it so cheap to have cyber crimes? Uh, why, you know, it's getting extremely expensive to protect our networks, while not on the other side, you know, causing same type of uh, challenge. Why, yeah, why is it such an asymmetry between yeah. the attacker and between the defender? I mean, yeah, Ben, yeah, do you wanna? I, I, think, I think my version of a quick answer there my version of a quick answer is it, it's all directly proportional to how connected we are. The more connected we are in our personal lives, our professional lives, I'm talking about technology here, there's a lot of processes, there's a lot of tools that we interact with on our phones, on our computers, and the more complex that system becomes, and those of us who have been working for more than a few years probably realize and appreciate it's more complex today than it was even a few years ago, the more complex those back-end systems become, the more attractive an attack surface that presents because there are now more places to potentially exploit. That's not a happy answer, but that's, that's my short version of the answer to that good question. So cybercrime exists like any other crime because it pays. It pays extraordinarily well, and there's a very efficient marketplace where goods and knowledge are exchanged quite readily. Very mature marketplace, and, and the fact that so many, quote, cyber weapons have, have been freely loosened uh, onto the world market, the barriers to entry are very, very low, yet the rewards are very, very high. So until you invert that 
I don't think anything's going to change. I hate to say that. It's not a lot of good news there, but it, the, the, the aftermath of, of Petya and the release of those CIA-type weaponry, right? Imagine someone walking down Pall Mall in London just dropping off crates of Kalashnikovs. And that's essentially what happened. And, and anyone can have access to that. And, and so that's why it's so, so easy and so cheap, relatively speaking, to, to launch and be involved in cybercrime. The rewards are, are pretty significant. When you think about recruiting and you think about the makeup of a team, whether it's from whether they're going to be the team responding ultimately to that attack or whether they're the broader team, are there certain things from a recruitment perspective or training or what have you that, that maybe you uh, folk on the panel have done? We've been extremely lucky in uh, recruiting some great people and, uh, you know, creating that environment uh, that fosters the growth, the drive. Um, and the innovation, um, you know, it comes from the people we, we bring in um, and, of course, some leadership. But, uh, you know, when we're actually looking for people, I, I find some of my best threat hunters. Um, they're not the people you'd probably think at first when you first look at their resumes. A lot of these folks, uh, I look for that drive, that knowledge to learn more. Uh, we have a saying back in Newfoundland, like a dog with a bone. I don't know if you use it anywhere else. We use it in Newfoundland quite a bit. And, you know, once you get hold of something, you don't let go. And uh, that's probably one of the greatest assets I can see in a recruitment uh, a resource. No, that's helpful. And Ben, I know you want to chime in here as well. Yeah, so sourcing is, sourcing is tough. Uh, one of the things we've done at my company to great effect is we try and build bridges uh, at the beginning of folks' careers, y younger people who might still be in college or just out of college. And going back to what Travis said, the good managers that we are blessed to have at RSA are the ones that recognize that you know, I'm not looking for this certification and I'm not looking for that impossible 20 years of experience in somebody who's 20 years old because it just can't work that way. But we are looking for some of these intangibles. We're looking for people who are curious. I love the example, Travis. You, know, you don't want to put the bone down like a dog. You're just going to keep working at it until you get to your objective. We talked a little bit this morning in my session around the truck or the auto mechanic. That gentleman who was so tuned into schematics and just did not want to put that map down, whether it's a truck map, an electricity map, whether it's a network map, he wants to find how this problem is tied to this solution. Uh, and finding that secret ingredient is not necessarily a traditional place to look when we're sourcing uh, incident responder talent. But it's those types of ingredients that we look for, regardless of somebody's age and regardless, quite frankly, of somebody's background. We've had a lot of success for folks who have been technically, classically trained in computer security. We've got some very high performers as well that simply had the right ingredients and they had the aptitude to pick up security as a secondary focus. I, law enforcement. Um, David Ostertag, one of my favorite forensic investigators, a retired Chicago homicide detective, and he's awesome, uh, often overlooked. They have all those traits we just talked about. The second thing is when I was running an insider threat uh, type program, I looked to the line managers because they really understand the, the business processes. They understand when fraud is occurring. They understand when anomalous behavior is occurring in your business. It's easier to teach someone cybersecurity skills than it is to teach a cyber person the business operation skills that institutional knowledge that comes from years and years of working inside that business. So don't overlook your own internal teams, right? Mike Davis from Counterattack, what final advice do you have for organizations as they're thinking about incident response, as they're thinking about trying to narrow that time gap between detection and actually responding successfully and uh, closing off that breach? I think what, the biggest thing actually to tee on a little bit of the 
communication and hiring type of thing is the ability to communicate what you're dealing with. So from an incident response perspective, what is the risk right now? What is the impact to us right now? Is this a, we should have hair on fire moment? Or is this a, nah, you know, it's just uh, something we can just deal with and we're gonna continue to move forward. Many organizations don't have the processes in place or the people that think that way. And so what ends up happening is everything becomes a fire, everybody runs around, and like the old story, if everybody's you know, hair is on fire, when you have a real issue, everybody's just gonna ignore you, right? I have seen countless incidents go completely under the radar because they were tired of hearing the security people saying, could you just see that thing in the news, that newest botnet, that could happen to us. This is why you have to give me four more million dollars so I can go do something. So they're justifying every little incident to justify budget, then you have a real breach and nobody listens. Um, so making sure you have the ability to communicate and people on your staff that can communicate is an, almost more valuable than the cybersecurity skills. Jonathan Wen, Fortnet, final advice that you have for organizations on IR. Just to give you the one tip that's often overlooked, when you, when you decide upon a forensic investigator to retain, make sure that he or she is a licensed private detective because the breach, the incident response is both an IT's crime scene, but it's a legal crime scene. Make sure that chain of custody, the chain of evidence, and you're protected from a legal perspective as well as from an IT perspective. Thank you, and Travis Barlow, Go Secure Counterattack. What final advice do you have for organizations on incident response? Well, I touched on it already a bit uh, in the beginning, but you know, incident response is a lot easier if you have all your ducks in a row here. And uh, time and time again, uh, we've, we have touched on this uh, communication chains, making sure everybody knows what they need to do is important, but also know the basics. Again, know where your data is, know where the risk is, and uh, don't be caught in it with your head on fire, if you will, trying to figure out where the bucket of water is. <laughs> ben Smith from RSA, what final advice do you have? One more vote for good communications internally, guys. Absolutely critical. You don't want, if whether you're the frontline person or more frequently if you're that manager or director higher up in your organization, you don't want that first phone call to your peer on, I'm putting this in air quotes, the business, to be bad news. Something bad has just happened. We collectively need to spend the time to create those relationships outside of our technical fields of vision. Do that starting yesterday so that when you need to make that call, to let your business peer know that something bad is either happening or about to happen, it's not the first time you've had that conversation. You've got to build those relationships first. It always, 100% of the time, it always pays off to build those relationships ahead of time. We have come a long way in a very short period of time. Thank you all so much for the fantastic advice. We very much appreciate it today. That is Threat Actions This Week, recorded August the 29th, 2018. I'm David Zemp. We'll see you again next week. Thank you. <laughs>